All praise and glory and honor to you. We have no one to thank but you. And we are grateful that you have given us the privilege today of gathering for the purpose of hearing the Word of God um, in order to appreciate fully what you have allowed us to do in completing this portion of the race. Um, but Lord, everything is always a lot more than a chair and a building and wires. It's about people. So I thank you for the new hearts that are here today and all the promise and hope that is available to them through Jesus Christ, that you have a place for them. So I pray, Lord, for all those who face um, the challenges of their own <clears throat> their own sin, the challenges of their own despair, the challenges of their own uncertainty and unknown, the challenges of purpose, loneliness. I pray today that regardless of what I say and we sing, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus Christ on every chair, closer than the marrow in our bones, you, Lord, are the answer. Your presence, your love your friendship, your sovereign lordship, your eternal plan is the answer. May everyone today, may this be a day where everyone leaves having bowed the knee and said, Christ is Lord of my life. We pray always for wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world that in the power of the Spirit, you would protect believers from unnecessary pain. And when you glorify them through suffering, would you give them grace to preach until their final breath and bring salvation to their captors. May the word of God spread rapidly today in all sister churches. May the name of God be hallowed in every inch on this earth. Through Christ, his death and resurrection, I pray. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> By the way, when we started Hope Point, I think Priscilla was three years old. And I think that's, I think that's accurate. I think that's accurate. In 1988, the Cincinnati Bengals made it to the Super Bowl 23 to play the machine, the war machine of the San Francisco 49ers. And, and um, their coach, the Bengals coach, Sam White, said, in order to win, we need to do three things, and that is stick to our game plan, maintain poise, and finish. Then subcategory of that, he said, finish every play, finish every drive, finish every quarter so that we may finish the game, and they did that until the final three minutes and 20 seconds of the game when they allowed the 49ers on their own 10-yard line 11 yards later to score. They went up by four, the Bengals with 37 seconds, uh, and a final last-ditch effort had an incomplete three incomplete passes and a quarterback sack. So they lost Super Bowl 23 because as well as they played, they didn't finish. Finishing is a very hard thing to do.
Many times the hardest thing to do in life is just to finish and to finish well. It's hard to finish an assignment at work when you're working for a supervisor that's callous and cruel. It's hard to finish a Ph.D. dissertation when it's been rejected and you're on your eighth revision. It's hard to finish a hard talk with your teenage child when you look into the eyes of indifference and rebellion. It's hard to finish serving the Lord when all of your sacrifices are spent on people that are hardened to the gospel. Finishing well is one of the hardest things to do in life. Yet it's one of the most beautiful things when you watch someone do it. To watch an athlete finish a game when he's injured. To watch a man go to the same factory and work for 35 years for his family. To watch a couple hold on to their marriage when the rough times suggested they quit. And to watch a missionary or pastor stay at their assignment until God calls them away. There's so much beauty in watching people finish well. And that is why I love the life of the Apostle Paul. By the time he came to the end of his life, he was in the maritime prison in Rome. He was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, awaiting the execution of his life by beheading. And in the last words he would ever write, in the last book of the Bible he would ever write, he said, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't think there's anything more beautiful in life than someone being able to say at the end of their life, I finished the assignment that God gave me. I didn't get distracted. I've preached on this verse before. I will preach on this verse again. I'm not doing that today. I just set it up so that you could see the end of his life to appreciate how his life in Christ began. I want to let you know With all my heart, I believe that the intent of Satan is to quit you, is to convince you to quit before the end of this day. Settle. Don't finish the race that God has called you to. I I, I am just amazed in my own life how I can leave a service like this where I'm so energized in the Lord through music and the word and fellowship. And it doesn't take something within the next couple days to make me say, I just don't feel like finishing my assignment. And I know you know what I mean. I don't feel like loving my spouse anymore. I don't feel like resisting sin anymore. I don't feel like being a parent anymore. I don't feel like praying and reading my Bible anymore. I don't feel like taking a risk for Jesus anymore. Finishing is not easy. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's because you've already quit. In order to appreciate the statement that Paul made at the end of his life, I want to look at the experience that began his Christian life. It's recorded three different times in the book of Acts. I want to look at Acts 26. This is his testimony of when he met Jesus. About noon, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and then I asked, Who are you, Lord? Response, I am Jesus. Don't you love the pictures of Jesus that that follow his earthly life? 
We saw meek and mild Jesus for three years in his earthly ministry. This is heavenly ascended, reigning, interceding, soon returning Jesus. And he offers just a tiny brief glimpse of the glory that's in him. And it is brighter than the sun. So believer, be encouraged today. That's the Jesus you serve. Brighter than the sun. Be bold, be confident, be hopeful, be encouraged. That's the Jesus you serve. That's the Jesus who's going to reward you. This is the Jesus before whom all the world will stand. The Jesus that's brighter than the sun. So let's listen as Jesus continues talking to Paul. Now get up. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. So from the very beginning, Jesus told Paul, this is going to be a hard road. You're going to suffer. The previous testimony we looked at last week described some of that suffering. You will suffer severely, Acts chapter Nine. There's no way Paul could have known exactly how intense the suffering would be, how cruel people would be to him. But in all of these things, Jesus is saying to him right here, I will rescue you. I will sustain you. That's the promise. You're going to suffer. I will sustain. You're going to suffer. I will sustain. The reason that today is so special for me, being the last Sunday in this building, as we prepare to move across the town, is that for me, this building represents 16 years of God rescuing me. 16 years of Him sustaining me, 16 years of Him strengthening me, rescuing me from fear, rescuing me from exhaustion, rescuing me from illness. Rescuing me from discouragement. Rescuing me from temptation and guilt when I fall. And the reason that God rescues his servants, the reason God says, I will rescue, there's a reason for rescue, so that we get to keep saying the greatest words that can ever come from human lips. Why he rescues. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I don't know what metaphors you identify with. If you're an athlete, that's called game plan. You run a company, this would be your business objective. If you're in the military, here's your orders. This is what the church does. So many people confuse. What should the church be doing? That. This is what we do. Everybody else does everything else. This is what we do. The mission of the church is to share the gospel of Christ's salvation so that people would turn from spiritual darkness to the light and life of Jesus. 
and leave the power of a hateful and defeated Satan for a loving and sovereign God. And preaching that message is what we've tried to do in this building for 16 years. We've tried to use the Bible to reveal the beauty of God that people might experience Him and enjoy Him. I rejoice how Sunday after Sunday, the trajectory of people's lives and the atmosphere of their souls have been completely changed because of our commitment to preach Christ. Maybe through a song, conversation, hug, fellowship, verse of scripture, a quote, but this common gem, and all of us who are involved in setup or tear down understand what I'm saying with it, this common gem, you feel nothing until 10 o'clock. It's just so drab and even when it's orderly, you, then 10 o'clock, he happens and turns it into a sanctuary. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago if this would be an emotional day for me. And I said absolutely, and I was really glad. Like when I talked to the Deerings a minute ago, yes, it's very emotional for a lot of people. And the more that I'm saying that they, they, they share that, because, you know, my response, you know, when in the earliest stages, when we started dreaming about this church in 2002, you know, me being ye of little faith and not entrepreneurial in my natural gifting is, where do you find a building if you do start such a church? And so I really wanted to quit from, the, like, I, you know, I just didn't want to wait on God and didn't know how to wait on God for such things, and then by God's grace, this structure became available to us, and our first months in here, this generous school of Oak Brook charged us $150 a month rent so we could get off the ground. I remember the days immediately prior to, uh, prior to our first launch of July 13th, 2003, and I think this is so cool. We launched July 13th, 2003, and we move in July 14th. 2019, and um, because all the church growth people say never start anything in the summer. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> two weeks before our launch, two weeks before our launch in 03, our proposed worship leader that we'd been working with quit. And I was off speaking at camps that summer, and um, the team, which is just has always been great, you, know, you, volunteers, said, we'll have somebody there. And, of course, God raised up Josh Ridings. And, and it's just, you know, the rest is history for those seven years. It's just fantastic. Then, the day before, July 13th, the Saturday before we were to move in, we had the team ready and we received an apology, a last minute they didn't know, but the people who had done the floor, the, put the urethane on the floor early in the week, sent Oakbrook a last-minute message, which we got on Saturday. You can't start. You can't put any floors on this gym floor. And it's Saturday. And every, we've announced it to the city. We're starting tomorrow. No floors on. No. We went to Home Depot. Of us to you and just say thank you. Thank you, Father, that you have used... Oakbrook 
to equip your church so that we may leave here every Sunday able to applaud God, follow Christ in obedience, and to live on mission right here in Spartanburg and across to the nations. Father, we, we can't do it without you. you. You appointed Hope Point to be here. And in your timing, as you remind us, you've transitioned us because you're the one that, do, that does the transitioning. You're the one, Father, that moves. You're the one, Father, that leads. So we just want to praise you. We want to be walking in obedience and following Christ. And as you move, we want to follow. And that's what you're doing now. And, Father, we are grateful beyond words because, Father, of all that you have done in 16 years. There's not enough time to praise you over and over and over and over for what you've done. So we come before you now and for the marriages that have been restored, for the healing that's taken places, for those that have walked through difficulties, Father, and the outcome was different than what they thought, but you have sustained them through it and you have encouraged. For those that have seen your glory in a different way. For those that have been sent out and started ministries, for those that have held babies, for those that have taught children who are now in ministry, doing ministry, for all the things you've done, Father, all glory to you, and thank you for the joy of being a part of it. Now we beg you, we beg you in the name of Jesus Christ that you will continue to glorify yourself as you transition us into a new place. And may this new facility facilitate what you will do in Sparman across to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And Ronnie, when you go down, would you give that mic to Phyllis Hendry? Because she's going to pray next, and she just found that out. <clears throat> I want to point out two more things about this verse. Uh, and uh, Phyllis, this will make sense to you in a minute. It's about the word belong. Uh, and I know that's you and I have talked about that. So next thing, look at Paul. I am sending you. This is he, God. I mean, Jesus told Paul in two ways what salvation was going to look like through his preaching. I am sending you so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. For me, when I think about salvation, I just think, man, if it's just forgiveness. My first impulse, that's enough. Thank you that I'm not guilty before a holy God. Enough. Jesus said, nope, nope, nope. That's only half of salvation. You're not just forgiven of what you've done wrong. You have a place at my table. See? So Paul said, you, Jesus said, preach forgiveness of sins and tell them they have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I'm not just forgiven of doing wrong. I'm welcomed by Jesus. I'm sitting at his table. He came from heaven to earth so that I might have a place where he is. And if you have placed your faith in Christ and you die today, you don't have to wonder what it's going to feel like in heaven. It feels like home. Because he wants you to have a place. Doesn't it feel good when you find your place in life? 
other translations say you have a possession, you have a portion, you have a part. But I like the NIV and I like the ESV here. You get a place. Because that says, oh, I belong. I got a place where I belong. So you, if you want to know how do I want the Spirit of God to so saturate us as we move to Asheville Highway, only He can do it, but He's going to do it through the love of this church because He lets people feel the concept of place in the context of among. That's how He creates this sense of, I belong here. It's when the love of Christ through the church reaches out and someone says, oh, wow, I belong with them. So you want to pray for Asheville Highway? Pray that the Spirit of God would so cause, cause us to be so loving that His Spirit through us would. And to Lowe's and every appliance store we could find. And we filled this gym up with cardboard boxes cut out and duct taped together for our first tarp. And then um, I remember, this is great, our first, this is our first PowerPoint screen. We used it for years. And I remember the first Sunday, somebody, somebody I think Roebuck Baptist gave us this, this screen for our PowerPoint. And the PowerPoint operator sat, you know, like right in front of it, shooting the projector up. And so we, we raised it up and it wouldn't stay up. And so... Somebody had a nail in their truck, like a you know twenty penny nail, put it through the hole, and so the joke became every week, and it was it was it was a joke, but somebody had to remember bring the nail for the projector. So these are great memories to me of hearing people say, "Who's got the nail this week?" Um, and then I remember the four months that we did have to leave the building after the first year. The church was growing okay, and we had to leave here because they have massive renovation which really benefited us eventually to, to get everybody in. But we had to leave this building for four months. What do you do with 130 people? Well, we went to the upper school, and we had three-fourths of the people in a hallway going in front of me, and we had a fourth of the people to my right at an intersection, and there in the middle of the intersection was the band. Can you imagine this band with 11-foot ceilings? It was loud. It was loud. But four months, again, the flexibility of Hope Point. So, yes, today's emotional because there are 100 stories like that over 16 years. I mean, set up and tear down. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's, it, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a burden, and it has burned some people out, some precious people. And, and at, you, you, that's certainly regretful, but there was no other option. But the positive that I just see is I feel like this building is the tabernacle, uh, the, the temporary tabernacle that God had Israel in for 40 years. We've been in it 16, they were in it 40, and every time they moved it, I mean, that's when God would refill it. So every Sunday, what I think of is the, is the filling of the spirit of the tabernacle, even though it has required lots of labor. And the things that have happened in this room, people have met their spouses and gotten married. And babies have come from that marriage. Lots. People have had conversations that affected their career because they met somebody here. They are in the job that they're working now because of what happened at a church.
We've had people in this church that have literally been called to serve God around the world because it was something that happened in this building that inspired them, stirred them, and now they are loving peoples around the world that they would have not met apart from the speaking voice of God in this church. And most importantly, it's what happens every Sunday. Every Sunday, you have pulled up a chair for 830 Sundays. You've pulled up a chair to the table, and you have feasted on Jesus Christ. Oh, and you've, you've, you always leave so much different than you come, as, as do I. So, so I guess today is our, today's our Marie Kondo moment, where we say, thank you, building, for all that you've done for us. You know, I'm kidding, because I'm really, I'm really just, I'm thanking God. Thank you, God. For all the rescue and strengthening and renewal that you have done in this building as you've helped people experience and enjoy you. So, Ronnie, you got a mic? I need you to grab it because I, I, I got here right here. Stop and pray. Thank God for this building. Would you do that? All right, let's pray, church. Father, we just humbly come before you. And we, as your body, as the body of Christ, we, we want to just lift our hearts, our hands, our minds, everything. The atmosphere on Asheville Highway would be people would walk in the door and they'd go, I belong here. Phyllis, would you pray for that? And so, Father, here we are, your children, Lord, so grateful to be in your presence, knowing that we belong to you, Father. That not only, Father, have you made a way for us to be home through Jesus, but you've given us a place to be with each other. And so, Father, I pray right now as we think about belonging to you and belonging in this new place that you have given us, Father, a platform, Father, for the world to see Jesus, that when people walk through the door of this new place, they will say, what's different about this? Why do I feel so loved when I walk in the door? What's happening in this place? And Father, that they will come to know it is the Spirit of God, the presence of God. And in this place, Father, people will come to know you. And because of that love that overflows in them, that the nations will come to know you. Oh God, do not let us miss this opportunity, Father, of belonging to you tightly. Father, that we will come closer and closer to who you want us to be. That we will become the ultimate, Father. That we will become love. And we'll be grateful, Father, and give you the credit for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Phyllis, let Brian turn that microphone off so I don't hear y'all whispering. (laughs) The other thing I want to say about this verse in Acts chapter 26 is the person to whom Paul is speaking, his audience, is unique. And he lets us know at the beginning who he's talking to. This is the third time in the book of Acts Paul is giving his testimony. This time he's giving it to a king. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense. A little background is important here. So this Agrippa, that Agrippa right there is actually King Agrippa II. He's the great-grandson of King Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. His father, Agrippa I, is the the king who put um, Herod, I mean who put um, James the Apostle to death in, in the book of Acts, chapter Number 12. And, um, and so at this particular time, King Agrippa, he's king of sort of a small region, a little above Jerusalem. He's the curator of the temple. He's supposed to be the expert in Jewish affairs. So you know, he's a king. And he had come down to Caesarea to talk to Felix, the governor, the governor of Judea. So King Agrippa had, came, had come from Jerusalem to talk to Governor Felix, who was living, governor's headquarters were in Caesarea. And here in Caesarea was the imprisoned Apostle Paul. Paul had already given his, he's imprisoned because of his preaching. He had already spoken to Felix, about why he's in prison, Christ. And in Acts chapter 26, he's about to speak, or he is speaking what we're reading today, to King Agrippa. Now, why does that matter? Because of something Jesus said the day that Paul got saved. Acts chapter 9, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. Now, from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 26... Paul has gotten the stew beat out of him. Stripped, mocked, just every cruel act that man can invent is done to Paul. Most leaders by this time would have quit. But because Paul did not quit, this prophecy spoken over his life by Jesus was fulfilled. I just want to tell you again, finishing is the hardest thing in the world to do. And if you quit, you will miss the destiny that God has for you. Finishing is a very important thing. So Paul received his commission from God in Acts chapter 9. And then as we saw last week, he said, my gave him some money. And he took us back to the airport and he checked himself into the hospital. He had a fever of 105. We didn't know it. And stayed there 10 days. So all of these memories, and then, of course, the tragedy that you all shared together with us when his wife was 36 years old, uh, a a common surgery for females here in in the States did not go well, and she died at age 36, and he was caring for 50 children. And so I look at Joseph, he's not quit. I mean, even yesterday, pastor, tell your wife to check WhatsApp. We sent her a birthday message. He's not quit running his race. Now look at Verwer himself. Saved in 1957. 
62 years later, at the ripe young age of 81, still serving the Lord. It looks like Berber is going to finish well. I love what author Randy Alcorn says. He says, I don't think George Verwell will retire until at least 10 minutes after he dies. <laughs> so let me close with this. As beautiful are the lives of the Apostle Paul, Charles Spurgeon, Joseph Paul, and George Verwer. Let me just share this with you. Our ultimate motivation to leave here, to finish well here, and to finish well on Asheville Highway is because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the motivator, not these men. On the last night of his life, nothing better than to peek in and hear somebody pray under stress. Jesus, just a few hours away from his crucifixion where he would die for our sins, prayed this prayer, John 17, 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, he prayed that the night before he died. The cross was still to come, but our Lord Jesus Christ looked at all the pain and suffering that was coming the next day, the next morning. And he was so committed, so devoted to the Father, he spoke in that prayer as if it were done because it was done in his heart. And less less than 18 hours after he prayed those words, he breathed his last breath on earth. The wrath of God had been poured out on his body for our sins and we were forgiven. And that's why the last words that Jesus ever cried is, it is finished. We have a musician in our church. I won't say her name. She plays the violin. She has an interesting tattoo on her wrist with the word tetelestai. I don't know many people who know Greek. So I ask her why. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite word in the Greek language. Why? When Jesus Christ said in John 19.30, it is finished, three words in our English version, only one word in the Greek, to die. It is finished. And she said, it's very helpful for me as a witness. I said, well, tell me how you incorporate it into your witness. She said, people look at that t- tattoo and they ask what it means. And I tell them, it's a Greek accounting term which means paid in full. And that is what Jesus said on the cross when he paid for my sin debt, paid in full. So today, we celebrate by God's grace we finished well, but let me just share with you, if Jesus had not finished his work, it would not matter if we ever finished one thing for him. The hope of the world is that Jesus perfectly completed his work Every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year. Perfection from the Son of God in finishing His work. And because He finished perfectly, we can finish well. Let's pray. Father, I think I just want to say the name Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, we marvel at your life. 
cannot imagine to be a 33-year-old man and to have never aired physical literature. And they repeated this for the following two summers. Because he was certain that global missions was his call in life, when he began to get interested in a girl named Drenna in, at Moody Bible Institute, he decided that he needed to tell her that nothing's going to stop him for missions. And so this is how he told her on the first date. That's, that's them really young in their life. That's Drenna and now their family. Now they did get married. I can't believe she married him after. This is what he told her on the first date. Probably nothing is going to happen between us, but I'm going to be a missionary. And if you marry me, you'll probably end up being eaten by cannibals in New Guinea. So in 1960, in the year that I was born, uh, Verwer and a few friends traveled to Europe where they began the prospect of literature distribution on the continent. Uh, the ministry then was called Send the Light. Part of their ministry in Europe would eventually be to build uh, vehicles in such a way they had secret panels so they could get behind the Iron Curtain and distribute the Bible where it was forbidden. And it was through one of their mechanics on one of those trucks that I received my first invitation to come to India. So I love OM. In 1970, the, uh, the name was officially changed to Operation Mobilization because he believed that he needed to invest his time in mobilizing the church to go rather than him just going. By 1963, 2,000 Christians had joined OM's outreach teams in Europe, and it was also in 1963 that OM sent their first teams to India, which was a life changer for me. OM has good shepherds ministries all throughout the slums of India, caring for children, their clothing, their food, and the hope of Christ. In 1970, they launched a ship ministry called Logos, and they also had the Dulas later, and the Logos visits ports, and people out of sheer interest are invited to the ship where they receive lots of free literature and easy-to-purchase literature, and it's all the gospel. They're changing the world by simply pulling up a beautiful ship, port after port in Asia and China, Japan, many other countries. OEM now has 3,500 workers serving in 85 countries. The first time that I heard Verwer speak was in Augusta, Georgia in 1989. Not only were his words anointed and they stirred deep, but his crazy jacket. For years now, he has worn a jacket that's made of the globe. And everywhere he goes, he wears the jacket that's made of the globe and holds up a globe so people can see the unreached portions of the world once again. You'll not find anybody in the latter half of the 20th century that's done more to mobilize the church than George Verwer and Operation Mobilization. Brings me to Joseph Paul. In 1993, after graduating with a degree in electronics, Joseph Paul joined OM. He met Verwer. Verwer said, you don't need to do electronics. You need to give your life to missions. And Joseph walked away from a good career, uh, began translating as a uh, for, for, for OM, and it was because he was translating in 1996 when I went to Secunderabad, India. Joseph was my translator, and that's how the relationship of this church began, all the way back to Verwer. So now you will understand a little bit more 
of why, oh, that's, that's Joseph Paul and me in 1996. Hmm. Beautiful shirt. So now you understand why I appreciate this picture. Because I know from my, you know, Joseph, I've watched him. The first time that we went to India, to, after the, the, I met him as a translator and he decided he was going to start an orphanage. The first time I went to India to you know, encourage him and give him some money, um, he picked us up. I was traveling with a man that was 68 years old and uh, now with the Lord. His wife just died two weeks ago and they're both together with the Lord. Hallelujah. But it, Joseph picked us up from the airport in an ambulance. His mother worked at a hospital, and he picked us up from the airport in the ambulance that he borrowed from the hospital. We came, looked at the orphanage, which at that time had 12 kids. only aim is to finish the race. I just want to finish my race. And so when he stood before King Agrippa, he was able to say, I was not disobedient to the vision which takes us all the way back to where we started today. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Wednesday evening, January 20th, 1892, Charles Spurgeon, greatest teacher of the Bible and the English language ever, had left his home in London to go to <clears throat> Mentonet, France, where he often would go to heal for about three months of the year. He was just sick during his ministry. He was there, laid down on a bed um, on Wednesday evening, January 25th, Monday. He was still in that bed, <clears throat> and he told his longtime secretary, Joseph Harold, My work is done. And he died five days later. Finished his race. What a joy it is to be able to say, any of us, my work is done. I did what God put me on earth to do. Nothing's more challenging. Nothing is more beautiful. Last, last week, I received a great um, text on, on WhatsApp. We communicate with lots of our overseas workers on WhatsApp and this one came from Joseph Paul, who is your director of the Children's Home in Chennai, India, as most of you know and heard that a thousand times. And for the previous two weeks, Joseph Paul, orphanage director, had been in London raising money, or really all throughout England, raising money for the Children's Home. And one night, he was at an event where George Verwer was there, and George Verwer had Joseph Paul come on stage and ask the congregation to participate in an offering for Joseph Paul, and then Verwer introduced him. So this is the picture I got from Joseph last week. There's Joseph Paul, our orphanage director, and George Verwer, whom I now want to tell you about. He's the founder of Operation Mobilization. Let me tell you why this picture is so important to me. When I was a uh, my first church, 1986, I was 26 years old. 
Someone told me about a book warehouse in Waynesboro, Georgia, um, that was run by this ministry called Operation Mobilization. And they believed that the distribution of Christian literature was a major means of discipleship. People need to read. And so, and the books were offered at a great discount. Now, remember, my first church, I went there making $17,000 a year, and I left 10 years later making $26,000 a year. I didn't have a lot of book money. And so to find out that these books were $1 and $2 a piece, man, it was a pastor's paradise. And the more that I stayed in that book house, the more that I heard stories of George Verwer and found out that his life verse was Acts 20, 24. I only want to do one thing, and that's finish my race. So let me tell you a little bit about George Verwer. He came to Jesus Christ in 1955 at the preaching of Billy Graham. When he heard the gospel, he said, this is the truth. My search is over. This is the most important thing in life. I love what Justin Taylor of uh, Gospel Coalition says about Verwer. He says, he did not only make Verwer a new creation, on that day he made him an evangelist. By the time Verwer graduated from his, his high school um, in, in, um, in New Jersey, Ramsey High School in New Jersey, Verwer, as a high school senior, had distributed a thousand copies of the Gospel of John. While attending Moody Bible Institute, his heart was troubled when he found out that seven out of ten people living in Mexico do not have access, proper access to the scriptures. So in the summer of 1957, he and two classmates sold some possessions, and drove a 1949 Dodge panel van to Mexico in order to distribute Christianly, mentally. We praise you that you finished every play, every drive, every day. So that on the cross, when the wrath of God was looking for an innocent man to suffer for guilty man, God, your Father, Jesus, found you. It is finished. I pray today, God, someone who is trying and striving to gain your love and to erase their past would understand that all of their finishing at their job, all of their finishing as parenting, all of their finishing with their serving, has no power to erase sins and stains on the heart. Only the finished work of the shedding of the blood of Christ erases guilt from divine eyes and the divine memory of God. So Jesus, because you finished, help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to love finishing what you've called us to do. May we finish for the joy of your sheep. May we finish for the joy of the nations that have not yet heard of Christ. May we finish for the beauty of a completed life that trusts you because of Christ Christ. 
May we have the joy of walking across the threshold of heaven, saying with Spurgeon, my work is done. Lord, so bring back those who've strayed and have stopped running the race. Bring them back that today is a new day, a new creation, and they are as righteous as anybody who comes back to Christ. May they come back, and may we press on. In Jesus' name, amen.